0: What are we looking at here is a film review podcast. There will be significant spoilers in every episode, so if you haven't seen the movies I'm discussing, please do pause here and go see them before continuing. I talk about all kinds of films and all kinds of topics, so some content may not appeal to you. You can check out the content warnings in the show notes and decide if this episode is right for you. What are we looking at here? Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today we're starting a three-part series about disaster films. This first episode is about mothers and the truly critical part they play in the disaster film genre. Before we begin, let me say by way of apology that discussion of any genre, a whole genre, is the kind of discussion that could go on for days and days, and frankly, maybe forever. Our purpose here isn't to be exhaustive. It's just an overview, looking at some of the key conventions and structures of disaster film and giving a couple of examples here and there. Some films use some of these structures more than other films. Some films use all of them, in a kitchen-sink type maneuver until you start to feel like you're being beaten over the head with some kind of film theory stick. I've tried to pick out the best examples for each of the categories I'll be looking at here, but there are so, so many, and not being able to include them all here doesn't mean they're not good examples, too. We're starting with the category of mothers in disaster movies, partly because their role, and that of women in general, is so fundamentally important to the story and to the development of the hero. But mostly because without the two most powerful mothers of all, Mother Earth and Mother Nature, there wouldn't be a disaster film in the first place. Even though the image of mothers and mother figures is everywhere in disaster movies, not all of the women in the films are good, and not all of them are motherly. Ruth from Dante's Peak, for example, is a loving grandmother and not a bad person, but she spars so bitterly with her daughter-in-law Rachel and is so stubborn about listening to Rachel that she nearly gets her whole family killed. And Ms. London in Daylight is more an example of corporate cold-heartedness than of nurturing behavior. Typically, though, the women who are main characters in these films are either mothers, mother figures, or both. Interestingly, even if the woman is an actual mother, the mother-figure-type guidance and nurturing don't revolve around their own children, but on other characters. What is mother-figure-type guidance? The mother-figure, at least in disaster film, is someone who guides the hero to where he needs to be, tells him what behavior or course of action would serve him best, and demonstrates preferred actions or attitudes through her own behavior. Some instances of the mother figure are Kate Curtis in 2012, Lizette in The Towering Inferno, and Dr. Lucy Hall in The Day After Tomorrow. Kate is perfectly capable of protecting her own children, but she continually leaves them in the care of their father Jackson. At the same time, though, she treats Jackson as though he might not be up to the challenge. Throughout the movie, Jackson is more than up to the challenge, but he's presented as someone Kate is evaluating, and we link her potential approval to Jackson's heroic story arc. Lisette, the older woman in the towering inferno who lives alone on the upper floors, ends up having to rescue two children from a neighboring apartment. Instead of needing help herself, as a stereotype of old women might have shown, Lizette gets herself and the children to safety through some pretty hairy physical obstacles. And Lucy Hall chooses to stay with a child patient in her care. He can't be moved except in an ambulance because of his current physical condition, so she takes a chance that an ambulance will stop by on their way out of a quickly deteriorating weather situation. Could she have driven an ambulance herself? You bet she could. Why would she not be able to? But she doesn't drive the ambulance herself, and there's a good reason for that. Lucy knows what needs to be done for this little boy, but because it's a movie instead of real life, her role in this story is to suggest what needs to be done, in this case drive the little boy in an ambulance, and to allow the hero or heroic secondary characters to take those actions, to prove themselves worthy basically. In 2012, Jackson has gained special knowledge about the disaster before coming to pick up his family, but Kate Curtis doesn't even know exactly what's going on, and it doesn't really matter. Her role in the story is to keep her focus on making sure the children are safe, or rather on making sure that Jackson remembers to keep them safe. At one point in the film, she mentions to Jackson that in the past he had a tendency to get lost in his work. Her concern isn't that he wouldn't want to save the children, but is instead a constant reminder that he had come up wanting in earlier times, and this disaster is a way for him to redeem himself. She's always pushing Jackson to consider the children, but she also keeps hanging back and letting Jackson prove that he can do it. Lisette's rescue of her neighbor's children doesn't have anything to do with Harley, the con man who's convinced her, as he has so many people before, to invest in a business venture. But in the face of her kindness toward him, Harley can't deceive her. He comes clean about the alleged business venture, admitting that it doesn't even exist. She manages somehow to see past the con man he's always been and to give a second chance to this man she's just met. She gives him the opportunity to prove that he can be the person she had thought he was before he revealed the truth. What does Harley do with his trust? Unfortunately, he doesn't get to keep Lizette. She's lost to the disaster. But he gets to keep her cat. He's given a life to care for, as a reward for being honest about himself, being brave in the face of the disaster, and trying to be a better man. Even Ruth and Rachel in Dante's Peak, who are constantly bickering with each other, engage in behaviors that are linked to the evaluation of the man who is in both their lives, Ruth's son, who ran out on Rachel and their kids years ago. In the end, even though, of course, Ruth still loves her son, she finally accepts that he made a mistake to leave his young family. She lets go of her stubbornness and reconnects with Rachel. Basically, disaster film women, mothers and mother figures alike, are not necessarily in the story to act for any particular thing. They're there to guide the hero to those actions, and to assess whether or not the hero has proven himself worthy. Sometimes the hero they're evaluating isn't even the one who gets to survive the disaster. He proves himself by sacrificing himself and sometimes characters who aren't worthy get to survive unscathed, but are revealed to their peers to be unworthy. What I'm saying here is that in a disaster movie, life and death aren't the same as good and bad, or as reward and punishment. The disaster film assumption is that everybody dies, and that offering himself as a sacrifice is an extremely valuable way for the hero to demonstrate his worthiness. Let's look more closely at three examples of mother figures who both guide the heroes and evaluate their actions. Grace Stamper in Armageddon, co-pilot Watts in Armageddon, and Belle Rosen in the 1972 Poseidon Adventure. Grace is Harry Stamper's daughter. He's clearly a kind man and a loving father, but she describes him, gently, as someone who didn't really know how to raise a kid, especially a daughter. She suggests that he's had his head in the sand about her being grown up, about whether or not she still needs him. She tells him that she is in fact grown up enough not to need him to parent her anymore. She reminds him that growing up on a series of oil rigs didn't give her a lot of quality time with him, and that technically the whole drilling team has helped raise her, because Harry wasn't quite up to doing it alone. Is that bad? Not really. And she doesn't seem to be upset with him about it, or sad, or damaged. She's just independent. He made sure that she always had everything and everyone she needed, even if it couldn't be him directly. It's not that he's done anything bad. It's that somehow he still wants her to listen to him as though she were a little kid. He wants the credit for all the parenting, even though she felt at times that she was raising him as well as herself. She doesn't even call him Dad She calls him Harry But now that he's tasked with saving the world He gets the chance to redeem himself In the few areas where he had come up wanting Raising Grace had been a team effort But now the final rescue of the world Falls on Harry alone He has to face it and do it all alone He has to finally trust Grace To look after herself To make romantic choices on her own to be on her own, because he won't be coming back. What is his reward? It's not his life. Like we said, sacrifice is extremely redemptive. Passing a test doesn't always mean that you get to live. But Harry gets to know that he saved the world. He gets to know that he saved Grace and her boyfriend, a young man Harry loves like a son. He gets to speak to Grace one more time, And to hear her say, you did good, he gets to hear her call him dad. Because he's willing to face something difficult alone, he gets to be her dad. And because he's on a video call with her, he doesn't really have to face the difficult thing alone. She's with him. What about Watts? Where does she come in? Watts is the co-pilot who explains to the shuttle crew that they've lost contact with NASA. She's also the one who miraculously re-establishes contact with NASA. And she's the one who explains to the oil rig workers how their thruster equipment works, so they don't accidentally float away when they're on the surface of the asteroid. She's a petite woman who squares off with Bear, played by the absolutely huge Michael Clark Duncan, and is in complete command of the situation with him. He respects her, and because he does what she says, he survives the film. But she's not just assessing whether or not Bear or the other men can respect her teaching. On a more metaphorical level, she's assessing whether the rescue team is worthy of help. When the shuttle loses contact with NASA, and the timetable seems to be leaning toward the failure of the mission, "'Captain Willie, Sharp, and Harry fight over who's correct. "'Should they blow the nuke early and render the mission useless? "'Or should they have faith in Harry's team "'and risk missing the deadline and rendering the mission useless?' "'Watts, who had no trouble at all squaring off with the mountain that is bare, "'stands quietly by and watches Sharp and Harry argue literally at gunpoint. "'When they decide that the answer is to have faith,' Somehow, moments later, Watts gets communications back online. When the men choose faith instead of force, the story, in the guise of co-pilot Watts, rewards them with communication and connection to their resources. We'll come back to that sentence here in a few minutes. Watts isn't the only one associated with communication. Grace is, too. She's able to be on a video call with her dad who's on an asteroid, after no one was able to reach the shuttle crew forever. How convenient. Lucy Hall is able to get an ambulance to stop by during a storm that's knocked out the power. Lizette is the one who realizes that her deaf neighbor won't have heard the fire alarm and comes to get her. In daylight, Grace Calloway is the one who communicates the whole plan to Kit Latoura, our intrepid hero, but her fundamental communication is to her boyfriend George about returning to her. She tasks him, tongue-in-cheek, to bring back the bracelet she had accidentally left in their bed. And even though he's lost to the disaster, George proves his incredible worthiness by contriving to return her bracelet to her. Those who are heroic in their actions are rewarded with communication, and those who value communication are rewarded with heroic status. We said we'd look at Bell Rosen, but first we'll look at the primary mothers in disaster films, Mother Nature and Mother Earth, sometimes viewed as the Mother Goddess. Clearly Mother Nature is the driving force behind disaster movies. It's nature, specifically, that's threatening mankind. It's an imbalance leading to a new ice age, like in Day After Tomorrow. It's a volcano. It's an asteroid incoming. It's the moon colliding with the earth. It's an earthquake or a tornado or a flood or a fire. It's crustal displacement. It's some way that Mother Nature is demonstrating that she holds all the cards. The heroes? They aren't holding any cards. The scientists and experts? No cards. The women whose metaphorical role seems so powerful? Not a lot of cards. Mother Nature holds them all. Even in Independence Day and War of the Worlds, where it's aliens threatening to destroy us, we aren't the ones who win. Mother Nature wins. In Independence Day, it's more subtle. David wins by spreading a virus. Sure, it's a computer virus, but metaphorically it's a virus nonetheless, administered by the man who's always been a champion of cleaning up the planet. In War of the Worlds, it's a literal virus, a literal infection the inability of the invaders to withstand Mother Nature's defense mechanisms. So Mother Nature is obviously the biggest player in a disaster movie. But the Mother Goddess is a big player, too. Or perhaps she's really the same player in a different costume. What costume would that be? Mother Nature and Mother Earth, in literary circles, have a lot of imagery assigned to them. Especially in disaster films, if you see the imagery, it's probably a reference to the entity. If you see caves, tunnels, natural or man-made, ravines, rivers, oceans, round things like, you know, asteroids or moons, that's Mother Earth imagery. Mountains, sky, natural forces like storms, also Mother Earth. Women in the story who are actual mothers, They're representatives of Mother Earth, as are the mother figures who guide others into a harmony with nature. Copilot Watts, for instance, squares off with Bear over how the thruster equipment will keep him on the ground, keep him in touch with, and by implication in the good graces of, Mother Earth. The men in Armageddon who drill into the earth for oil, they're not working against nature, Harry even points out to the protesters at the beginning of the film that he's donated a lot of money to their cause. He and his workers have raised a girl on their rigs, and they accept, unlike Willie Sharp, that drilling into the Earth, even an asteroid Earth, takes the time it takes. It takes the time the Earth needs it to take. And because Harry's team is working with nature instead of against her, They're rewarded with success and with approval by the women in their lives. How is the Mother Goddess different? Is it not just the same imagery? It is, for the most part. But Mother Goddess imagery and references also include being swallowed by the earth, or being swallowed by anything, really, like Russell Case in Independence Day flying into the alien ship. It includes being crushed by earth, like Roy Nord in Daylight, who says flippantly, I was born premature, my own mother couldn't keep me in, and who is then bitch-slapped by Mother Earth by a thousand tons of rubble. Goddess imagery includes the stereotypical things, like roundy Venus of Willendorf-type shapes, women with enormous breasts and hips and tummies and bums who are associated with fertility, but it also includes women such as the Christian Mary and cloth-bedraped angelic forms. Importantly, the image of the Mother Goddess tends to be a person, an actual character in the film rather than an entity like a storm. Verbal references to her tend to be specific rather than generic. What does that mean? It means that when the Mother Goddess is in the film, you know it. When she's unhappy, you know it. When she's happy, you know that, too. Sometimes she's an entity, like the column of rock that falls on poor silly Roy Nord, but often it's an actual woman, saying actual things to the actual hero about his attitude. And what kind of attitude is likely to irritate her? The Mother Goddess, for the purposes of disaster films, is an avatar of Mother Nature, While sometimes nature's fury in the films is just happenstance, an alien invasion, an asteroid, the San Andreas Fault, faulting, other times the implication is that people made it happen. The Day After Tomorrow theorizes that abusing the air and water has accelerated the temperature imbalance that results in the next ice age. The towering inferno is directly a result of people not taking the laws of physics or the value of human life into consideration. In either case, Mother Nature doesn't really care how it all plays out. Like I said, she holds all the cards, and why would she value human life over that of a tree or a shark or an ant? It's all hers. She is nature, and we are only a part of it. But the imagery of the Mother Goddess the possible actual character of the Mother Goddess, is focused on people in particular. She's observing the hero to see if he's worthy. She's evaluating not just what he does, but why he does it, and how he does it. For instance, Roy Nord isn't doing anything wrong by being confident. He's not doing anything wrong by offering to lead people out of danger. No, it wasn't his actions that were irritating. It was the flippancy. It was the verbal disrespect of his own mother, and by extension, Mother Earth. He considered himself to be a conqueror of the Earth, and this ego trip was incorrect. But Roy Nord hadn't been bad at all. San Andreas's Daniel, on the other hand, he's bad. He refers to his buildings as his children, as his family, as replacements for human interaction. Is he a murderous bastard? No. He's just a guy with very little tact who imagines that he's got a pretty good handle on things because he's rich and successful. But when something happens that he can't control, the earthquake that traps his girlfriend's daughter Blake in the parking garage, he leaves her there. He doesn't know what to do, so perhaps he believes that nothing can be done. We'll give him that tiny sliver of the benefit of the doubt except then he tells a guard that Blake is down there and doesn't stay to help rescue her. He clearly thought something could be done, but he didn't want to be the one to do it, even though he had been entrusted with Blake by her mother. And later he literally pulls another man out of his safe nook so that he can have the safe nook, and the other man gets killed. Maybe Daniel is a murderous bastard. His girlfriend... The mother figure, assessing the wannabe hero's actions, finds out what he did and threatens to kill him. But in the end, he's crushed by a container ship. Then ships, of course, are always women. Does Daniel's skyscraper, at least, keep Blake safe? Not really. It collapses in stages like it's late for a date with Roy Nord. Other men who find themselves on the wrong end of Mother Nature aren't necessarily bad at all, but they prioritize the wrong things when they make their decisions, which makes everything worse. Paul Dreyfus in Dante's Peak is a good man who eventually sees his errors and does his best to correct them, but he had spent a good deal of the film arguing with the scientist he hired and ignoring the recommendations in favor of what would be better politically. It's not that Paul's wrong per se, it's that the film rewards people for their motives more than for their actions. Paul should have prioritized safety, and since he didn't, even though he was sorry, well, he had to die, in a van, down by the river. Mr. Calder in Volcano isn't sorry at all. He's just another Daniel building his buildings for rich people believing that people who aren't rich people aren't actually people. He spends the film irritating his doctor wife about her insistence on treating the poor and working at a hospital that lacks the prestige he values more than his wife's personal preferences or other human beings. Does he get killed? No. But he loses his pretty building because the hero knocks it down to divert the lava flow. Poor Mr. Calder. For Mr. Simmons, too, the ill-fated builder of the towering Inferno. He cut corners. He saved money that wasn't his in the first place. He made things poorly. It really is his fault that the whole thing started and that it went so badly. Was he sorry? He was sorry he was trapped in the building. After pushing other people out of his way so that they fell to their deaths, he fell to his death. All that money he saved didn't help him, I guess. Looking again at Volcano, we have Stan, a city manager who seems truly sorry when he learns he's been wrong. But he doesn't waste time saying anything about that. His face says everything in just a few seconds. It's my favorite part of the movie. Stan's been arguing the whole time with Mike Rourke about whether or not there's lava in underground L.A., He doesn't understand why he should take his trains out of service for a threat that seems completely ludicrous to him. He spends a lot of time suggesting that the real problem is who's supposed to deal with the problem, whose job it is to deal with the headache, whose fault it is if things go wrong. When he goes underground with a team to find a missing train, he finds all the train's passengers unconscious from the heat, and then he sees the lava coming down the tunnel. Immediately he absorbs what would certainly be an incomprehensible sight. He realizes the people on the train are in danger. He also realizes the conductor is only on the train because Stan made everyone go to work. He tells the team to take all the unconscious passengers out to safety and he goes forward to get the conductor himself. He walks back out with the conductor on his shoulders while the rubber on the train windows melts and the glass breaks and his shoes melt, and the metal catches fire. He throws the conductor across the lava pool so the rest of the team can catch him, but Stan can't clear the pool. He doesn't make it. But unlike the other men we just looked at, Stan's not just sorry. He realizes he was responsible for that man. He accepts that responsibility, and he sacrifices himself to save him. So how do we know Stan is favored by Mother Earth while the others are not? We know because Stan's goal is achieved. He saves the conductor when by rights neither man should have been able to withstand the rising heat. His sacrifice is witnessed by others who can attest to what he did. Paul Dreyfus is seen being swept away, but he wasn't in the process of saving anyone, so his death is not presented as heroic. Mr. Calder doesn't even get to be in the rest of the movie. We don't even know for sure if he lives or dies. And Daniel, of course, dies alone, unseen and unmourned. We all die, but Stan has redeemed himself. It's not all dying, though. Quite often Mother Earth saves the hero, especially if that hero is working with nature rather than against it. In the towering Inferno, they figure out that the only way to stop a raging fire is with a flood. The explosion of the water tanks should have killed every man left at the top of the building, but somehow skinny old Harley survives. Trying to deserve Lisette's regard has earned him an extra life. Other men live, too, tied with simple belts to things that water should easily have washed away. Being willing to work with nature and let water fight the fire has earned them all a bit of favor. David in Independence Day works through the whole film to save the earth. He recycles, he considers the ramifications of nuclear attack on the aliens, and his final plan honors his own wish to hurt as little of his own ground as possible while being willing to lay down his life to protect it. How could the mother not allow him to come back to her? In San Andreas, Ben and his brother Ollie descend into the parking garage, a strong symbol of Mother Earth, and rescue Blake, not by brute force over concrete and iron, but by lowering the car so that it can be pulled clear of the rubble. They lower the car. They lower themselves. The metaphor is one of submission, of lack of ego, of working with. And not only does this protect them, They're able to save Blake, and Ben earns Blake's love. Does it always go this well? No. Sometimes the path to heroism is a one-way trip. Harry Stamper and Poseidon's Reverend Scott have to surrender to whatever nature throws at them. They submit entirely. And even though they don't get to survive the disaster, they're found to be worthy heroes, and their missions are allowed to succeed. Daylight's Kit Latoura surrenders, too, and because he's willing to embrace the peril, his crazy plan works and he saves the girl. Why did he get to live when Harry and Reverend Scott didn't? Perhaps because his willingness to be sacrificed earned him the right to complete his mission, his real mission, which was to honor George's wishes and bring Grace Calloway her bracelet back. His real mission was to find Grace. Harry Stamper's real mission was to find Grace. When Harry imagines her in his final moments, he sees her in a drapey white dress, a wedding dress, but one that also looks like angels, or the Christian Mary. Stan prays as he walks through the melting train cars. He prays to Mary. Armageddon's Max refers to God as she when he's on the asteroid, and when he dies... It's because he stops listening to the clues from the ground and gets cocky. Don't get cocky, Max. Don't be ignored. So what's disaster film saying? In regards to Mother Nature, Mother Earth, it's saying... Cutting corners, building phallic skyscrapers that are somehow still smaller than your ego, prioritizing politics and money, devaluing human beings basically imagining that your little projects in some way mark a triumph of your will over the earth, these things make you a target for the disaster. If you manage to live, you will lose all you have. If you work against nature, you and everything you work on will be struck down. If you work from the wrong motives, you'll be swept away in a van. If you leave children behind, you'll be flattened by a container ship. If you imagine you're too strong or clever to die, you're wrong. But if you're brave, if you work for the safety and protection of others, if you take responsibility for yourself and for your actions, you'll be rewarded. If you work with nature, she'll work with you. If you're willing to sacrifice yourself, your mission will succeed. If you do sacrifice yourself, you will be held in high regard. If you prioritize the right things, you'll be favored. And what are the right priorities? Children, obviously, people in your care, safety rather than politics or expediency. As we saw with Watts and Armageddon's nuclear showdown, when they chose faith in themselves, in their mission, in the process, when they chose faith instead of force, they were rewarded not just with communication but with connection to their resources. The earth will share resources with those who work with her instead of taking by force. The characters who recognize that the earth is their home and not an enemy to vanquish find safety within it. Dante's Peaks Harry Dalton drives Rachel and her kids into a mine, into the heart of the earth, and they're safe there, safe from the volcano that's right on their doorstep. The water doesn't wash the men away as it puts out the towering inferno. The ocean is a haven for the arks in 2012. And Deep Impact and Independence Day have tunnels and sewers and underground bunkers, because nesting in the earth is safe. Resting in the earth is safe. War of the Worlds? The earth herself saves humanity, just by being herself. Those characters, especially male characters, who live in the Earth rather than trying to reign over it, their plans work out, their risks pay off, their sacrifices mean something, they tend to live through the disaster, and they earn the love and respect of the women in the film. You thought I forgot about Belle Rosen, but I didn't. We've talked about Mother Nature, Mother Earth, and the Mother Goddess, and the full-bodied symbol of fertility that often comes to mind when we talk about those female entities. Poseidon Adventures' Belle Rosen looks very much like that full-bodied Venus of Willendorf. She's quite round and full-figured, struggling to pull her weight through vents and tilted corridors and over all the debris of a ship that's turned upside down. She tells them all repeatedly to leave her behind, that she won't make it anyway, that she's too fat, They don't leave her behind, even though she was kind of slowing them all down. She talks about how she used to be a swimming champion in her younger, skinnier days. She's an older Jewish woman who wears a necklace with the Hebrew symbol for life. About all we know about her for most of the movie is that she's fat and tired and thinks she should be left behind, and that she used to be a swimming champion. When Reverend Scott gets stuck trying to swim through a submerged corridor, Belle realizes that this is her moment. Of course, she used to be a swimming champion, but that was many years and dozens of pounds ago. She's hardly been able to keep up with people. It doesn't matter that she used to be a swimming champion, because she's just not in shape like that now. But this is a movie, not real life. It doesn't matter that she was a swimming champion. It's not about that. As soon as she dives into the water and starts swimming, this mother-goddess-shaped person slices through the water as though... well, as though she were a mother-goddess. As though this water is hers to toy with. As though she belongs there. She doesn't look fat and tired anymore. She doesn't look like an older woman anymore. She looks like the master of the water... And she finds the reverend, a man who's been struggling with his faith and wondering what he ought to believe in, and she brings him to safety. The human vessel she's been inhabiting can't take the strain of such exertion. She has a heart attack and dies. But before that, she gives her necklace to Reverend Scott and says, not for the first time, life matters very much. Guided by her sacrifice and her words, Reverend Scott resolves his crisis of faith. Whatever God he may choose, he's decided to have faith in life, and he does what he needs to do to get the others to safety. It couldn't come from a clearer image of the mother, the mother who is the disaster, who is the storm, who assesses the hero's worth based on why he does things, rather than on what he does or how well. What are the right priorities? Life. Everything else is ego. Everything else is hurtful. Everything else will be swept away. You may be thinking, are disaster films hating on men? Are they hating on women? No, they're not. They're not even hating on technology or modern life. They're not hating on ordinary human mistakes. In fact, the teenage boy who's struggling so hard to figure out how to be a man is one of disaster film's most cherished tropes. What about all that phallic skyscraper captains of industry stuff? Is it making a judgment against that? Not particularly. Harry Stamper is a man who drills oil for billionaires, but because of his motives and his respect for the Earth, he gets to be the ultimate hero. It's not necessarily the what. It's the why. These mythical images of the feminine and the mother goddess are a counterpoint not for masculinity, but for the destructiveness of trying to control forces so much bigger than anything humans can build. Women tend to be in non-action roles in these films, but it's not because they're trivial characters. In fact, the women we've used in today's examples all act when needed and have deeply important roles in the story. It's perhaps an ironic mistake to imagine that the women can only matter in the story if they're the focus of dramatic action and daring do. One of their purposes in the stories is to offer an alternative to that kind of thinking, thinking that only people using physical force are strong, or capable, or heroic. It is true that women tend to be the sidekicks, the secondary characters, but that's because they're teaching the heroes how to better align themselves with the feminine earth. Not feminine-like frilly stereotypes, but feminine-like fertility, nature, the yin to a yang. These are movies, not real life. They're not real men and women. They're metaphors. And in the metaphor of disaster films, women characters represent that mythical feminine. Unlike the potential hero whose actions and choices are being evaluated, women in these films are all little manifestations of Mother Nature, Mother Earth, the Mother Goddess, and in this way they do hold some of the cards. It's the men in the film who are being asked to hear a message, which we'll discuss in the second episode, which will be episode six of season two. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word. If you want to check out my other content, you can visit my website at www.smrcooper.com. I hope you have a good week and that things go your way. And if you get a chance, watch a movie.